And I'm delighted that this evening we are joined by uh, the digital creative director of some of the biggest BBC brands like Doctor Who, Peaky Blinders, Sherlock, Joe Pearce. Hello everyone, thank you for coming. I'm really excited to be here, especially as this keynote speech is in memory of Dowie Vaughan Owen, an enabler of innovation and someone who made it possible for me to innovate in my career early on. So to my speech, I've asked myself four questions when planning this speech. One, why innovation is vital for any brand to succeed. Two, why change can be positive and why innovation can, happen, can only happen by believers. And lastly, four, why innovation is vital for script-led productions. So let's start with the first why. Why innovation is vital for any brand to succeed. On-demand platforms have given audiences greater choice and the ability to dictate their own schedules that fit and complement their lifestyles. And it's this that has driven rapid change change that many broadcasters weren't prepared for. Hands up in the audience, who has watched things on demand in the last 36 hours on Netflix, iPlayer, any, any device? That shows the huge growth. If this was 10 years ago, we would be nowhere near that. Right, get ready for some stats for me. I'm gonna be short and really precise so you don't fall asleep. In 2018, 3.6 billion programme requests were made to BBC iPlayer. The most requested show of last year, and indeed ever, was the drama Bodyguard, with a staggering total of 10.8 million requests for its first episode, with the smash hit Killing Eve coming close with 9.2 million. These figures are enormous and demonstrate how, as an organization, we must embrace the on-demand audience. Incidentally, we dropped series two of Killing Eve last week on iPlayer, and episode one alone has got 864,000 requests. That's 79% up on last year. So how do we make iPlayer a, a rich experience? Well, innovation takes place there too. We've done tech trials with Wimbledon last year. Being brought, we brought it, Wimbledon to viewers in ultra-high definition. And yesterday, Ofcom, Ofcom provisionally approved our plans to trans, transform our on-demand platform. We will, now, we will hopefully now be allowed to make programmes available for at least 12 months for all commissions and five years on children's programmes. There will also be box sets of selected returning titles and a selection of non-returning programmes extended for longer or brought back from the archive. The BBC, in my opinion, is a, is a centre of excellence for drama, and so the introduction of box set viewing was a must for the audience. Having high-end drama on demand is now becoming essential for broadcasters. But now for some cool tech. In 2017, we made Knock Knock, a haunting episode of Doctor Who in binaural sound. Basically, we provided a 3D surround soundscape for people watching with headphones on iPlayer. This really did place people at the heart of the action. To research and develop this function before going live, we tested this on fans in the very house that we shot this scary episode. 
Here's a little bit of info on that. My name's Nikki Wilson. Um, I produced the episode Knock Knock, written by the wonderful Mike Bartlett. This event is all about promoting the, uh, the binaural mix so that people understand what that's all about and what it adds to the experience of watching the episode. When you're watching it, you feel like you're, you're there where the camera is and you're listening and you're part of the action. <laughs> Being yeah. in the house that they filmed it in was quite cool and it was a great experience. It makes it so much more real. Yeah. It's brilliant, especially for something like Doctor Who. It's in the kitchen. When you think that something is there with you, your body immediately thinks you're in danger and it just brings that actual fear that they're feeling in the show to you. Any minute, the monsters can come after you. It sounds like that. It's just something you don't do every day. You don't come to a big scary house and watch an episode of Doctor Who. It's like seeing is believing, but in this case, you have to hear it to believe it. So why the sudden need to innovate? Well, it seems daily businesses we recognize on the high street are disappearing, or even media brands look outdated and fail to hit the audiences they once took for granted. That is a worrying trend, but at the heart of this is often one determining factor. They have become irrelevant to the consumer and audience. They simply fail to future-proof themselves via change programs or innovated early enough to have the skills needed to meet the changing needs of their future customers and audiences. Here's a few examples of those. Kodak. Kodak developed the first digital camera in 1975. The engineers there took it to the, their board, their, their, their CEOs, etc., showed them it and said, wow, that's, that's, a cute, that's cute, that's a cute bit of tech, but don't show anyone. Don't show anyone, because we don't want our business model to break. They didn't, and we all know what happened. Digital uh, cameras took over, and Kodak became irrelevant. Again, Nokia. Nokia now, st still in the market, owned by Microsoft, but it dominated for a long period of time. But what if it became complacent? It didn't see that software and computers were coming around the corner, and it didn't see the touchpad, uh, touchscreen as a, as a viable way forward in the same way Steve Jobs did. In 2007, when Steve Jobs launched the iPhone, they suddenly lost huge amounts of market. And then the third one, blockbusters. The founder of Netflix offered blockbusters to buy Netflix early on. The idea was they would advertise Netflix in stores and Netflix would, uh, would manage the on-demand the, the on uh, production of blockbusters films. The blockbusters turned it down because they said that the model was niche. Ironic, when Netflix now is really dominating that on-demand uh, audience. So these are three, three areas that show, actually, if you don't innovate, you could die. Now, in this speech, now this speech is more about the BBC and how we have innovated, especially in drama. Let me take you back to March 2006. At this time, we were into our second series of brand new Doctor Who with David Tennant. We had big, big ambitions. 
ambitions and could see very early on the appetite for more content by audiences. To help feed that demand, I was tasked with producing a series of mini Doctor Who episodes. Sounds great, but I wanted to do something different. I wanted to put them on mobile phones. Very few people were doing that at the time. Sport had tried, but scripted content was very far behind. With two great creative leaders, both Welsh, in Russell T. Davis and Julie Gardner, I was allowed to take that chance. They were called the Tardisodes, and to my knowledge, they were the first high-end dramas made available on mobile phones in, UK, in the UK. It's worth noting, at this point, these weren't the days of smartphones. There was no G of any kind. This was the day of downloading at a snail's pace and waving your phone in the air as much as you could to get a reception. To get these lovely short-form episodes, you had, to register for, uh, you had to register via a text messaging service, which would cost you between 12 and 15 pence. And then it could cost you literally an arm and a leg to download the content. But at least the batteries tended to last a little bit longer. Video on phones could be very expensive in those days, so it was vital to us that these, high, these dramas were very high-end and worth the payment. For me, these episodes weren't about getting high volumes of users. Watching videos on mobile phones at the time was painful. It still gives me anxiety when I think of trying to download it to test it. No, it was for me the first chance to learn my craft and start developing our skill to be able to produce for future generations on the platforms that actually have become akin to them. And in that thinking, we were absolutely right. By embracing the very ethos of Doctor Who, a brand that has always innovated over its 56 years on TV, we led the way in which drama would be consumed. I was very proud of what we developed, a first of its kind for the BBC. So when a senior person in the BBC, BBC announced that they'd failed to deliver audiences at MIPCON, MIPCON's a very high-profile media event in Cannes where all the big names go, I literally had steam coming out of the top of my head, as you can probably see. I still haven't forgotten about it. Why? Because what they had failed to realize was that this was never the purpose. It wasn't about generating huge audiences on mobile phones. It was about learning our craft. By doing these episodes, we learned how to script for small devices, for smaller screens, the lighting considerations, um, the viewing habits of how people consumed this content. And actually, when we put these episodes onto the Doctor Who website, after the trial had finished, they generated 2.6 million views. All this learning has fed into so many different projects that I've done on high-profile brands over the years, one of which was the launch of Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor in 2017. So much of what we learned 13 years ago on those Tardisos adventures helped us generate 16 million views in approximately 24 hours across the world for the 13th Doctor. So, to my next why. Why change can be a big positive. So, back to those hazy days of the mobile in 2006. And I would say this still happens today. People believed that the TV set was king. 
but times are changing. This guy, Jeffrey Katzenberg, the former CEO of DreamWorks Animation, is about to launch his service Quibi, a high-end short-form streaming platform for mobile phones, and, he's very, and he has a very large commissioning budget. He started the company with an initial investment of one billion. Quibi will have unique content with some of the biggest names on the planet, and it will be exclusive to mobile. Its target audience will be 25 to 35 year olds, and he believes he thinks very differently to most people. This quote from him recently in, at South by Southwest really demonstrates that. So he says, what we're setting out to do falls somewhere between improbable and impossible. That just happens to be our home address, and we love that. Brave thinking, and clearly he's seeking out the opportunity to lead in a new market. The lessons from my mobile experience is that innovation should always be seen as future-proofing your brand. It should never be seen as a mainstream event. In certain circumstances, that is possible, but ultimately, it will be the start of a bigger journey, one that will keep your idea and programs relevant for years to come. We must be brave and step into the unknown to make the everyday possible in the future. Advancing technology means that what we may perceive to be necessary one year or even one month will be irrelevant the following year. In 2003, Steve Jobs announced iTunes Music Store with the following quote. We think people, may, we think people want to buy their music on the internet by buying downloads, just like they bought an LP, just like they bought a cassette, just like they bought a CD. There was definite transformational thinking in that statement, and the launch of that service most certainly changed the way people can sing music. But in 2019, we are in a very different era, one of big streaming giants like Spotify. They are providing subscription-based services that allow mass music libraries access at relatively low cost. It seems Apple's thoughts about people wanting to, the, to own rights is no longer valid. They actually want access to huge libraries at a touch of a button. And so two weeks ago, Apple announced the closure of iTunes in favor of three bespoke apps, which they believe will better serve their audience. So to the next why, innovation can only happen by believers. It is so important to be a believer in the future, not a justifier of the now. But you need a number of people around you to bring your vision to life. They will come from many different areas and all walks of life. I often have a team of different producers, both editorially and technical, comm specialists, audience data, and business affairs people, including the person that this speech is in memory of, Dowie Vaughan Owen, to help me make my dreams possible. You often hear of people saying, the lawyers won't like that. Well, I never felt that way when I took an idea to Dowie. He always found a way to make the unknown happen. He really said no, but always, ah, leave it with me. I need to think that through the, in terms of the rationale, for, and I'll come back to you. And mostly, and mostly he did just that, as well as mentor young legal talent, leaving a legacy of like-minded lawyers behind him. The lawyers considered the risks, enabling us the freedom to develop 
the creative ambition. For many years, digital producers have been frustrated with how little digital success is celebrated. I can't tell you how many times I've reported what has been some great results only to be told, yes, but can we trust those figures? And don't forget, Linear is still the platform everyone goes to. But these, these points are both valid and worth considering. However, what, what has failed to be taken seriously sometimes is just how quickly online platforms have dictated youth and young adult viewing. Now, there is simply no way to paper over the cracks. The change that streaming devices and social media platforms have made are so evident that having a digital strategy attached to a brand is what I believe essential for the brand to flourish. The importance of digital and innovation has risen up the agenda, but only since the decline of linear audience has become apparent. And as I said earlier, if you aren't able to replenish your audience, the future is very limited. So how can you take advantage of this disruption in audience behavior? It's easy, be a believer. Where there is disruption, there is always opportunity and you have the intel and the knowledge to drive that. I spend vast amounts of time looking at youth and young adult viewing data, trying to make sure we are innovating in a way to replenish our audiences and still be relevant for the future. But many of you know that instinctively, what content you desire is in your mind. Never has there been a better time for young creatives to stand out and make an impact. You just need to solve the business problem. In 2000, I was competing in an internship with British Airways. I was experiencing a life that would be filled with international travel and new experiences. Sounds great. And to any normal person, it would be. But I was more amazed by the ability to find information at the touch of a button and being able to launch my own somewhat self-indulgent content to the world via HTML web pages than I, than I was about flying to Milan. To be fair, I did go to Milan and got bitten 20 times on my feet by mosquitoes in one night. The lesson learned was being a geek is all right in so many ways, but wearing socks and sandals is always considered a fashion crime, especially in Milan. Those nights of writing code whilst drinking wine and watching The Latest Friends, a format that I'll return to later in the speech, started my obsession with digital and being an early adopter. In, 20, in 2001, I decided not to return to BA and went to work for ITV in London. It was there with a colleague that I started the first online division for Carlton Television. In those early years, it was difficult to come up with compelling website content that advertisers would sponsors and gain revenue around. It was tough. We were still in the internet boom just about, but no one really understood the buy-in model. So the ideas had to resonate and produce a solution to a business problem. At the time, I had no idea just how important this would be in my career. It taught me the ability to embrace change but to also be a problem solver and use tech to do so. If there's only one thing you take from this speech tonight, it should be the importance of thinking creatively to solve an audience need or a business problem. This ability has rewarded me with a very diverse and exciting career. No day is the same, every day is full of problems, but problems are challenges to me. I see them as a game and one that I want to win. So to refer to my points at the start, embracing change and being a problem solver are two of the most important traits you, will, you need to excel in the media industry today. 
if you have the passion, the proactive nature, the creative insight and foresight to speculate what the change will be, you can innovate before it happens and own that disruption. The opportunities are there before you. So, to one of my final whys. Why is innovation vital for script-led production? Early in this speech, I mentioned how viewing habits had changed. No brand is big enough to ignore that. As you can probably tell, I always try to view change as a positive, the chance to reach new audience and to tell new stories in completely different ways. My mission for any digital or innovation project we developed is to achieve something that TV simply can't, make the experience memorable and give it a sense of wow. A good example of this is Sherlock Live, our Webby Award-winning live episode. It played out live on Twitter and delivered just that wow factor. Why? Because for the first time, the audience could help Sherlock solve a case, but also they could talk directly to Sherlock and he would reply. This was a hugely ambitious project and one that didn't happen overnight. In 2010, when the first series of Sherlock went out, myself and the TV executive producer, Sue Virtue, discussed having a blog for John Watson. To the fans' appreciation, we launched John's blog, which also featured in the, on, on the, which also featured in the TV show, posting new crime cases that the fans hadn't seen and giving more insight into the lives of John and Sherlock. But... By the third series, we felt we needed to offer something a little more enticing and unique. So we started to develop the idea of a live episode, played out on social media to accompany the next series. The idea was 12 months in the making, and on the 10th of January 2017, Sherlock was live on Twitter to the world. So let's hear from the writers Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss on why Sherlock was on Twitter and a little more about what we were trying to achieve. Sherlock Live is a chance to solve a case alongside Sherlock Holmes. The real Sherlock, Sherlock. The real Sherlock Holmes. Yes. No, I mean, the actual one, he's here. And he will be uh, helping or hindering people along the way to solving this heinous crime. We'll be trying to facilitate things, but mostly trying to stop him from being appallingly rude to the entire population. It's going to be, I imagine, hugely irritating for him to watch people think. He hasn't done that for a while. He surrounds himself with you know, fairly intelligent people, so now he's about to launch himself into, into the world of Twitter. He's going to be horrified. <laughs> we were very keen from the beginning to, to show that Sherlock Holmes is a modern man as he was in the original stories, so there's absolutely no reason why he would be sort of Luddite about social media. It would all be a way of embracing the modern world and interacting with it, and really just a great place to find cases. I'm sure there are lots of mysteries on Twitter. Oh yes. <laughs> That was one of the most bizarre hours of my life. Uh, Sherlock has left the building. Yes. With Kermit. Kermit in tow. 
Bunsen here, who is the, the dog in the night time. Uh, we enjoyed feeling like old people, whilst uh, lots of people here at NASA HQ did all the hard work. Yeah. We contributed nothing but got a round of applause for it, which I think our lives should be more like that. And that was great. I think uh, Sherlock was generally just a little pleased that people were a tiny bit less stupid than he thought they were. Sherlock Live generated over 153,000 new followers to BBC One that night on Twitter. These, fi these figures would take months, if not years, normally for us to generate using digi standard digital strategies. Although we knew the audience would love to speak to the great detective, we also knew the appetite for more Sherlock was high. Each se series consisted of only three episodes, and so the fans craved more stories and challenges for them to and also for them to test their own powers of deduction was too big for them not to engage, as you heard. Miss Piggy and Kermit also got involved. We've also experimented with back-branching narratives. It seems this format everyone is trying to crack. We in the BBC have played our part in trying to bring this multi-story format to life. We first started to explore branching narratives using interactive TV around 2006-07. We developed a game-like branching narrative for crime shows like Spooks and many more. These were highly popular, but we, what we learned from them was that we needed to keep a constant story engine throughout so that even if people entered different character side stories, they were eventually brought back to the main plot. Since then, we have developed branching narrative format, formats with indies like Fish in a Bottle for Casualty and Hinterland with Fiction Factory. And of course, Charlie Brooker most recently launched Bandersnatch, part of the brilliant Black Mirror series on Netflix. All of their merits, but there's still some work to be done with this format to make sure we keep that story uh, momentum at throughout. So to our latest innovation, Doctor Who The Runaway, our VR adventure. For the first time ever, you can actually step into the TARDIS and have the Doctor by your side. You can be her companion and help save an alien from total distinction. The development of this project has been a long time in the making. Prior to starting this project, we made a VR version of a mobile game and started to understand some of the opportunities and limitations that VR could bring. Our main purpose for making the episode was to bring something to Doctor Who fans that they'd never experienced previously. And like I mentioned before, we couldn't achieve with a TV show. What we learned was that scripting for VR is a very different experience. You need to build the world around the user by carefully anchoring them in the world, making them feel that their current environment is much more interactive than it seems. VR is a wonderful tool, but it still has issues, especially in terms of its rendering and file size for headsets. So you have to be very careful in terms of design, especially in terms of a monster. His movement needed to be fairly static in order for the doctor to move with the rigor she does in the show. Then there was the style. We opted for animation as we felt that a live action version would quickly expose us due to the limitations with the software. What we learned is that people quickly forgot it was animated. They simply immersed themselves straight into the world. This was mostly down to the brilliant voiceover by Jodie and the script, as well as some smart direction from Matthias, our director. We recently launched the runaway in Tribeca in New York, 
and are currently touring across UK libraries. We're also hoping to bring the mobile version of this uh, to headsets later in the year, once we have, we've received enough user data. We do have two headsets available tonight, so please do try and uh, so please do go and try the Runaway. Doctor Who is a great test case to show innovation. Here's a slide that demonstrates the platforms and initiatives that we undertook last series and via some previous series. series. It highlights the fact that for global brands, it is vital to capture the attention on all platforms to drive interest, surprise, and intrigue, whether that is from a Snapchat filter to a live lesson straight to shoot schools across the UK, a multi-layer game that teaches children to code, or a Google Doodle. Add in depth of experience as no audience, uh, add in depth of experience is very, very important as no audience can be taken for granted. So this slide shows some of our social media channels. On Doctor Who, we've grown that to around 8 million followers across our platform. That is fundamental to us in the way in which we communicate, both from a public service point of view, but also from a worldwide brand point of view. And then we also do partnerships. So Refinery29 was very important in terms of the great work they're doing with women in the industry, and we really wanted to be part of that. Uh, Spotify, we did partnerships with Spotify. Basically, what I'm saying to you is we don't sit back and think the audience are going to come to us. We go to the audience and we try and find content innovation or strategies to capture those people's attentions and bring them back to the brand. Lastly, let's just talk about where we will be going. The BBC is currently researching and developing apps and platforms based on voice-led experiences. This is an area we are all excited about developing as it gives us different approaches to storytelling and allows multiple ways of engaging with a story. AI is also an area we are keen to explore and the possibility around uh, 5G is very, very exciting for us. So clearly, the world is changing and it's fast, but one thing remains, the development of brilliant, captivating characters in drama st is still a huge draw for audiences. If the content is brilliant and the audience will seek it out. Earlier in the speech, I mentioned my love of friends and the fact that every week I would race home from Heathrow to watch the latest episode. Well, here is my daughter, Scarlett. What's on her jumper? Friends. Why? Because she loves that show as much as I do, and so many millions more. Ted Sarandas, Netflix content chief, has said that Friends is hugely popular on his platform. He sees it as one of the priorities to keep it, and has paid tens of millions of pounds to make it that way. But Friends isn't the only one. Sonic, Marvel, Star Wars, and the brilliant Lego constantly reinvent themselves and stay relevant to audiences just like the Doctor. It regenerates to stay relevant. For me, it's a real joy to be here tonight, to hear the orchestra play the music from Zelda. I love that game franchise so much. A brand that is still as good today as it was when I first played it back in 2008 on my DS. Zelda helped to keep me sane. As a very nervous flyer, it was the only thing that got me through an eight-hour flight to Cuba on my honeymoon. Anyway, that's enough from me. Thank you so much for coming tonight. 
I hope you found what I said informative. Do stay and enjoy the bril brilliant National Video Game Orchestra of Wales and do see our brilliant producer, Mat Matthew Rogers, and play the VR game. Does anybody have any questions for me? Hi, uh, thanks for coming tonight. Uh, found that very interesting. I, I have a, a personal curiosity about the thinking behind um, making programs redundant on iPlayer over time. Um, I know it's Netflix model to change content continually and not have the same things, but it would make more sense for me for the BBC with such a, an amazing legacy of content available to keep that a bit like almost like an archive yeah. available for all audiences for all time. But I know obviously sometimes things sort of drop off and then they come back on and I guess that the idea is maybe to refresh people's memories about it, but I don't understand why they're, they're not always available. Um, it basically comes down to rights. So we, ha we license, especially if it's made by an independent production, we license that content for a period of time. When it comes out of its license, we can't then show it. But what is really exciting for us is that Ofcom yesterday, and this is, was very, very positive about a change in iPlayer, and what that would mean is that we would be able to serve certain things from the archive, especially some of the series that people you know, hold most dear. So the hope is that you know, there will be more selection and they will be there for longer, but as everything, a lot of the time it comes down to the rights. I thought it might be something like that. I know that's uh, the case with Netflix and iTunes. They often lose uh, licenses to things. I just, um, it, my simplistic way of thinking, I assume the BBC owned all of its own content and obviously that's not always the case. Yeah, I think, do you know what? It's a good point though, because I think everybody thinks that. Um, but no, you, we, we uh, especially in indie production, we have some in-house productions, but the indie productions, we have it for a certain period of time and then it, and then it moves over to them. So yeah, that's the reason why. Brilliant, thank you. Hi. Um, uh, it's really interesting about the Ofcom ruling, but where does that leave writers and actors and musicians in terms of getting paid for their work? Are we moving to a you know, complete buyout for everything? To be honest, I'm not the right person to ask that because I'm not a lawyer, but um, I'm sure that they'll be negotiating how they do that in the same way that Netflix, Amazon, you know, I, I couldn't really answer that in detail because that wouldn't be my area. But, um, yeah, I think that's what they're going through now. I mean, just my understanding is that, you know, the less the BBC pays up front or an independent pays up front, the, the shorter the licence and the less use you get out of it. So Yeah, I think they are... I mean, it's... We're talking about change, and that change is happening so quickly, and I think that's what they're, they're all looking at now, you know, what, what is that new relationship going forward if Ofcom do act, you know, they, they've said that they're in favour, but they haven't actually actioned it yet. If they do action it, I'm sure that's the things that they'll be grappling with. Hi, you mentioned the um, Killing Eve second series dropping straight onto iPlayer yeah. as a whole set. How do you make that decision, differentiation within BBC? Which ones you put as the whole box set and which ones you sort of do is shown and then is on iPlayer? There's a number of considerations. One is rights. So do we have the rights to do that? And there's only a certain amount of titles that we're allowed to do that with at the moment, and they're very small. So we tend to be very selective of what they are. Um, Killing Eve was a huge hit last series on iPlayer for us. Big, big hit. So actually, once we knew that we were going, you know, we were going to get a second series, I think that then that went. They went into negotiations around that at that time, and actually, it really performed well with mainstream. But 
with young adults as well. So all those things all come into consideration and then that's how they make the selection. Second point in a way is just a comment. You've mentioned terminology like innovation, change, change is good. All this fits into my world, which is education. And at the moment, we're trying to create um, schools as a learning organization. Collaboration, innovation, change is everything that we're trying to encourage in education at the moment. So it was interesting to hear it from a different point of view. Yeah, uh, schools are really important to us. I, I, I don't know if I mentioned it in a speech, but we do a, a lot of outreach, especially on Doctor Who. So when we launched this last series last year, we actually did a live lesson to, to schools throughout the UK. And we tend to do things like coding games that teach kids to, to, to code using gameplay and so on. So learning in school, learning by stealth, I think is a big job for us on some of these brands. Just picking your brains, because clearly you're talented and you know your stuff amazingly well. Just wondering, um, knowing that kind of Facebook is falling away as a popular platform for younger people coming to it. Where do you think the platforms of the future will be? You know, viewing figures for linear content are dropping away. Where do you think we'll be in kind of 20 years' time? <laughs> is there a... Yeah, I know, I'm, I know I'm asking an impossible <laughs> question, but just where do you think the focus should be? Or what are you most excited about? I'm really excited about a few... Th so, if I break that question down... I would say um, Facebook is still dominant. It's the biggest social platform in the world. So as a percentage of that, it, prob it does still have the biggest youth, young adult audience. However, people are diverting away from it. And one of the things that I've noticed through the brands that I look after, and they tend to, you know, to, tend to be the biggest ones, so we get good data out of it, is that... Um, People obviously are still using social media in high demand. Instagram is growing fast, especially for young females. But also, it's quite interesting that I give a lot of information around about me on social media platforms. So I'm constantly tweeting about, you know, tw I tend to tweet about my business stuff, but Instagram and Facebook is very personal. I, I share a lot of detail and data about myself. Younger audiences don't anymore. I think they think we're all mental. I think they think that we just we've just gone crazy. Like, why are we giving all this content and information away around ourselves? So they tend to use Messenger a lot more to communicate. Um, and actually, that is making it a harder job for those other social media platforms because they can't see what they're talking about because it's private. And actually, I don't blame them. That's probably the best way to go, especially when you're young. Um, so. I would say that, you know, in terms of that, they're moving much more to like a private environment more. YouTube, though, still growing hugely. So, you know, we, we should never underestimate the power of YouTube. Where we're going in 20 years, God only knows. I mean, I find it hard to think about where we're going to go in 20 months. AI is obviously really important for us at the moment. It gives us the ability to learn so much at a different level to what we could be fed via Google, but also how, you know, how can we play with that AI to make real life experiences? So the answer to your question is, in 20 years time, I don't know, but it's exciting. And I think the one thing we should never do is worry about change. We should embrace it. And like I said in this, I really feel every time there's a disruption, there's an opportunity. And it's just spotting that image, uh, opportunity and running towards it. So, um, so yeah, it's hard to say. I think mobile will be a massive grower. Uh, Jeffrey Katzberg is, you know, 
ex-CEO of DreamWorks, he knows his stuff. He's put in millions, billions into that service. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Thank you very much. I'm going to have to wrap it up. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank Jim. you. Thank you. <laughs>